I think it shows like just how much goes into it, who these people are, um, and it takes you through the race. And then like to kind of close it up, it's like Joe back on Orchard Street, um, like hanging out, um, smoking a cigarette. And uh, I just want people to take away from it that kind of when I explored this process, like what the minute I have meant to people and what it is. And I think that you can decipher from each person what it is, hopefully through the images. I think I definitely learned a lot, but at the end of the day, and I know this is in the book and this is gonna sound cliche, like the minute I have is whatever the fuck you want it to be. Like if you, if you go there because you're trying to win, that's what you should be doing. If you're going there because you think running is cool and you just started and your friend told you about it, that's amazing. I think that Joe's created this phenomenal race that transcends any type of person, any skill set, whatever. And at the end of the day, I think the coolest part of OSR is just like, no, like everyone enjoys it. Everyone supports it. And I think the main thing I can say is that's a byproduct of who Joe really is and, and who, who Trimble is. And it's just kind of like dissolved into the project. That is Brendan Clark. I'm Chris Chavez, and on behalf of my co-host, Leanne Sherrick, you're listening to the Runners of NYC podcast on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. Now, before I share with you our most recent live recording in front of our friends and loyal listeners, I'm happy to announce the latest sponsor for our show is Fix NYC. Fix offers a customized recovery and wellness experience like no other in New York City. Fix was built by friends who include a marathon runner, triathlete, and a sports chiropractor who saw a void in the New York City recovery market where there was no place to go to before you got injured. With all the -the state-of-the-art technology available to professional athletes to achieve their goals, the Fix team wanted to offer the same caliber of services to the New York City community. Fix offers a bunch of services that are geared toward recovering and improving the body and mind. Along with the familiar infrared sauna and Normatec compression boots, Fix also has a cutting-edge, low-level light therapy bed that uses a process called photobiomodulation. Try saying that three times really fast. It's the only one of its kind in New York City. This powerful light therapy bed heals the entire body so you can be race ready or so that you can bounce back after a killer track session. Pair this with the newly released full body electric cryo and you are freaking mint for your next workout. If you're looking to unwind, they've also got options. You can try their zero body flotation, uh, which is one of the first of its kind in the U.S. It's a great way to pull you away from the day stressors as well as to allow your muscles to relax. Along with these whole body modalities, Fix also provides local cryo for sore or inflamed muscles that targets those areas in need if you're looking for some really quick relief. Collectively, their services work wonders on the body and mind all in one place, and they help you achieve that hard sought-after PR. Fix NYC is located in Chelsea at 206 West 23rd Street. Come before or after your workout, a long flight, work day, or during your personal time. Fix will explain you through everything that they have to offer and provide you with a space to relax, recover, and unwind in their modern-day athlete spa. You can also use the code RUNNERSOFNYC to get 20% off all their services, packages, and memberships only for the first month. 
First-time users also get their choice of one modality for free on their initial visit. That's the best deal we've ever had to offer. You can find all this info in the show notes and check them out. Fix NYC at 206 West 23rd Street in Chelsea. Thanks again to them for supporting the podcast. For this episode of the podcast, we hosted the conversation in front of an audience of about 70 plus people at the Equinox Hudson Yards Hotel. It was a great setting to celebrate the release of Brendan Clark's book, Above the Midnight Half. A link to the book is available in the show notes. If you're one of the OG listeners of this podcast, it might sound familiar because some of our past guests have run in this Orchard Street Runners staple, and its founder, Joe Donato was actually guest number one on the show. The Midnight Half has been written about in Vice, Runner's World, Outside Magazine, but this is the book that will help illustrate the race and its competitors very beautifully. In the second half of this show, you'll get to meet two of those competitors. Jordan O'Donoghue was the men's winner this year. He was also a vice president at J.P. Morgan. Sasha Whittle was the women's third place finisher. She is a producer and a documentary filmmaker who actually just ran 251 in her marathon debut at CIM at the beginning of this month. So we touch on a wide array of topics, and it was a great time. So without further ado, here is Above the Midnight Half live with Brendan Clark, Jordan O'Donoghue, and Sasha Whittle. Enjoy. All right, everyone, thanks for coming out to this live podcast. Thanks to Equinox Hudson Yards Hotel for having us. This is a super nice space. We're super excited about this. Um, we might have a couple people filter in every now and then, but um, yeah, I know I'm super pumped about this episode. So with this episode, we're going to celebrate some great storytelling, some awesome people, and so I'm really looking forward to it. Um, yeah, let's let's get right right to it for the most part. So it's I'm Chris Chavez, joined by my co-host here, Leanne Sherrick. Um, and we've, we've decided that we're gonna ha- call this our holiday party for yeah. the podcast. So thank you guys for coming to our our holiday party. Yeah, because for the most part, it's awesome that this has been pretty much a little over a year since we started this thing, and now we've got people coming out to live shows. We can put out an episode every two weeks and. A bunch of people will listen to it. It's kind of crazy because our voices are pretty annoying. Um, but no, yeah. Speak for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll just get right to it. And we're going to welcome on our first guest of the night. We're going to have three guests. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Brendan Clark, who is the author of this awesome book that I've got in my hands here. It's Above the Midnight Half. It makes for an amazing uh, holiday gift, a great coffee table book as well. But... Um, Brendan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, you've got, we're going to dive right into your own running history because you have a connection to one of our past guests. If you've been listening to the show in the past, David Kilgore is one of the most popular episodes that we've had in the past. He is a ultra marathoner. He's won a bunch of these OSR races, a legend out of Florida, and then you were on the same team back in high school, right? Uh, yeah, so senior year of high school, my soccer coach, um, uh, Coach Phillips, said, hey, like, you know, it's your senior year, we want you to be like in good shape, uh, you should run on our cross country team, which seemed terrible 
mainly because like they were so competitive, like a really, really good school known, known for their cross country. Um, so went out, um, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, David was in the like, prime of his career in, in high school, um, which was really cool. And he was winning all these like awards and stuff. And obviously if, if you guys know David, he's probably the nicest person I've ever met and I'm not exaggerating. Um, so it was a really cool, cool experience for like a non-runner to, to run their senior year. So it's funny that you started not running or running just for soccer and now you've just created this whole book specifically about running. But how did you finally find the love for running? Yeah, so when I when I moved to New York, um, my friend, dear friend Jack Seymour, who's here today, uh, kind of like expressed interest in running the New York City Marathon this year. So like maybe like 18 months ago or like 20 months ago. Um, he's like, hey, we should get into this. Like, we should get into running. Um, and obviously, we were really close with David and um, like Daniel Moore and other like really good runners from our high school that had gone on to to run in like um, high levels. I was like, okay. And I will never forget this. We went out to the West Side Highway, and <laughs> I think I ran like two miles in like 22 minutes. <laughs> and I was just like, this really hurts. I don't know if I want to do this. And then the next run. Um, I was going on like a train and David was like, let's go running, you wanna run? And I was like, okay. And David painfully dragged me for three miles and 24 minutes in the park and I, I thought I was gonna die. Like actually it was like in so much pain. And then uh, it kind of became this like really cathartic experience and uh, started running. And then I think this kind of moves into like how I was introduced to OSR. Like two or three weeks after that, David was like, hey, I'm running this race called the OSR 10K. Um, it's like this really cool race. Uh, people run in like the streets. It's unsanctioned, like et cetera. And uh, I showed up, and uh, that's kind of where it all started. What brought you to New York? And then I guess when you do an OSR race, for those people who are familiar with it, it's like you have to know the streets, which is like your knowledge of the city gets offset with your own running talent. So for you, what was that mix like? Um, so I've, I've ran one OSR race. Um, it was the Bread Run race. Um, I tore my labrum during that race. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so... How does that happen? <laughs> well, yeah, so I think it was, like, it, it, it was exaggerated during that race. Like, it, it was kind of, it bothered me. But uh, my experience in that race is uh, all about trust. So when that race started, which if you guys don't know, it starts at 2 in the morning, uh, again, Jack Seamer uh, was like, do you trust me? Because like, everyone is like trying to figure out like how like like the course and like what you do because you have such little time. And I was like, he's like, you know, I've been here for ten years. Like, you went to school here. We're both from Florida. I was like, of course I trust you. You're my best friend. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we start left and ninety people go right, and uh, we ended up running like a mile more than everybody else. <laughs> Uh, but it was like an amazing experience. You have these like super surreal moments of like intimacy through the streets. Um, and that kind of like gave me this really intimate feeling like with New York City, if you've ran an OSR race, you've experienced that. And uh, that's something that I really wanted to like translate through my work, um, especially this book. But I'd say it was a really cool experience, but uh, painful, painful. It seems like all of your problems are because of Jack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all my problems are Definitely because of Jack. <laughs> so you ran the one OSR race, and you're like, no, I'm just going to shoot the race instead. Yeah, I essentially was like, uh, like if I was running a little bit more. Like I ran the Staten Island half, and then uh, I like went overseas and ran some stuff. 
uh, for work, and then it like really hurt, and then was diagnosed with a torn labrum, and then had been speaking with Joe, who after I shot the 10K, he, such a nice person, he like asked me for coffee, which like yeah, I just want to get to know like who you are and like you know who's shooting my races, because he, he really, if you know Joe, he really cares about like knowing people and developing a relationship. Um, he'll get coffee with anybody. And he kind of informed me, like, hey, you know, I'd love for you to keep shooting these races. Um, and then I think I've shot almost every single race since then. We've had photographers on the show before who have captured some of these unsanctioned races, some races at high levels. What do you look for in particular when you're shooting some of these races? Yeah, so I think that um, what I've always attempted, and it really, like, started at the midnight half, was how to kind of make images that are unique because there's so many phenomenal photographers, right? And I think there's so many photographers that, that photograph these races that might do a better job at capturing uh, moments uh, in their own way. So my goal has always been to capture moments that were unique. So the, that first started in the, in the midnight half because if you were there, there was like just a plethora of photographers. It was, it was like rather overwhelming. And I remember when, as the women were, were lining up, I kind of had this, like, mildly, like, this, this thought, I don't feel like I'm going to make images that are unique if I'm kind of following everybody. So I kind of took, took myself away and was like, what can I do? I was a little bit harsh on myself. Like, well, how can I create different images? And luckily enough, there was all this discarded, uh, like, like, machinery, like, like bulldozers and, like, like, little crane and all these things. And it was that moment where I kind of just took a gamble and, and decided that I wanted to shoot everything from above. I think like Tim Rossi was there and I was like climbing on stuff and he was like, you want, really want to do that? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so it was kind of like, okay, how, it was kind of like simple thoughts. Uh, and ever since then though, I've tried to generate, like I've gone in intentionally since that race and tried to, to create images that are unique. So if you see my 10K work, that goal is specifically that the Manhattan skyline was the primary focus in my work, and then as your as your eyes moved down, you would find like a runner, and that was all deliberately like intentional. And then in London, it was to get a winner's photo that was that was unique and different. Um, and in that situation, it was like there was another photographer who had a strobe, so I made the decision to photograph it at like a, a kind of different setting so that the runner would be running into the light, more like in a kind of like ethereal situation. So basically. To answer your question, like shortly, it's just I'm just trying to create images that are unique that that make people feel something um, a little bit different than like your traditional eh, photograph. I think it's cool to hear you say that, and also because I think that OSR brings a certain type of person to their races, and so is there something about the competitors specifically that draws you in, or that like they are just fighting tooth and nail, and they're just like down in the trenches, like going from the gun, like I don't know. I think that those competitors bring something different, and so you probably capture something different with your shots. Yeah, I, I think that um, like it, when my experience has been that like whether you're in the lead at a Orchard Street race or you're like like in another position, uh, you're having these like super intimate moments with New York City, right? Like. It's in the middle of the night. You're you're spending a lot of time alone, and I think that, with regard to my work, like that, those are like kind of the, the things I wanted to capture. And I think, um, it kind of just 
takes sense to, to look for those things. And I think that people are probably searching for those moments themselves. Like they, they're out in the streets, they wanna experience New York City in a unique way. They wanna have like a very unique, intimate running moment. Like, you know, obviously it's, it's without being said, but like there's no water station, there's like no corrals, right? You're just going out there and having this like really phenomenal experience with yourself. And I think it also pushes people to probably a different level. Um, because like there's really no like time you're going after because you don't really know what time like it's very interesting that you're running a race and you don't have some idea of your time right like you're just going out there to compete and I think that it creates for like a unique individual and also it creates for unique imagery so much of it during those races is just quick thinking and just like as you said before like taking risks so for you as a photographer and as a storyteller where did you learn to do so much of this YouTube. <laughs> uh, yeah, in terms of, like, technically, like, I, I didn't go to school for any of this. Um, I think mainly it's just kind of been to create, like, the most honest image possible um, and, and, and one that, that, I mean, I think photography is a little bit selfish. Like, I, it's nice that other people like your work, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to make work that I'm proud of. Um, and in turn that other people might relate to. And uh, I just want to make these images. But with regard to OSR, it's just been a medium and a format that, that I'm just genuinely curious about. And what led me to make the book was kind of exploring the, like, the intimacy. Like, it's quite polarizing, the, the people as they run and then the people away from, from the race. So the book itself, what's the process like into finally having this thing in your hands to the moment that the idea came about? Because it's like a lot of people ran the race and for a week or three weeks or a month, people are just continuing to post photos from it on their Instagram pages. But then from there, where did you want to finally like put this together in a book? Yeah, so um, it, it's funny because when I went to the race, I remember uh, we've had a funny talk about this, but Joe had told like he kind of had forgotten because I was traveling around for, for work and Joe's like oh last minute I need this photographer like Brendan like on my list and Trimble's like I have no idea who the hell that is like what like who is that like and Joe's like no 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 like we like whatever and Trimble's like okay like fine um he's just like so like you know inundated with other stuff and so I shot the race and then the uh, story goes like Trimble texted Joe's like whose photos are these and uh um I try to put them out as fast as possible because as you know, like the faster you get the, the photos to them, then like the more likely that they might use them, which is kind of just like, kind of ga like gamifies, like it's just a lot of fun as a photographer. I think other photographers here that shot OSR, it's, it's fun to like, it's a unique experience, like edit the photos as fast as possible. Um, and so what happened essentially was I was at work the next day, I believe, or a couple days after, I'm not sure. and. Uh, how it really started was uh, Ash, Ash Gilbertson um, reached out to me about the photographs and uh, after kind of talking for a bit, we decided to meet, meet up. And he was like, hey, I think you should do something more with these photographs. Like, uh, I said some nice things about them. And uh, his, I, he had some few ideas that he suggested to me. And so I kind of thought about it, marinated on it a little bit. And then I had breakfast with Joe. And uh, I had kind of developed the idea for a book, perhaps. Uh, specifically on this race. And uh, I asked him, and he said a bunch of people had inquired about making a book, uh, but um, you know, no one had, but he was comfortable with me trying. I said, all right, well, 
let me think about it because I wasn't comfortable in going after a book for two reasons. The first, because I went through if I could do it or not, and I wanted it to be at like the highest level. Uh, the first was I'm not a designer, and uh, I wanted the design to be correct. And I had kind of decided at that point to take some, some studio photography work, uh, which I didn't feel 100% confident uh, to do it myself. I wanted to work with another photographer. So my first thing was calling Henry Phillips, who's here, who's an absolutely phenomenal studio photographer, photographer in general. I've learned a lot from him over the years. And uh, he, he was really grateful to say he would collaborate and, and help me with, with that process. And then uh, I called Andrew Haynes, who's a phenomenal creative director. Um, and he was like, yeah, I'm down. So it was like, after that, it was really, okay, what do I want to do? And I decided that I wanted to kind of explore this like intimate polarization between the race the images from the race itself with some athletes that I was curious about their lives. Um, and, and I wanted to photograph them in this kind of unique way. Um, and so then I just started and uh, yeah, that process was like a long thing of like getting them to say yes or, or what have you and um, kind of went from there. Was it harder than you thought it was gonna be? No, but certain parts were. Like getting certain people like, like just getting their like phone number was like really difficult. Like in this like modern world, like, um, that was difficult. Um, the mosquitoes in Caitlin Phillips' backyard are like so gnarly. <laughs> um, that was actually like terrible. Um, but no, in all seriousness, uh, there were there were moments where I definitely was like really frustrated, uh, in the sense of like really came down to like my confidence uh, as a photographer because I'm pretty hard on myself and and I I wanted to be happy with the images. Right, so I think it was more my self-confidence, and this project was really like beneficial for that uh, uh, as a photographer to get to a certain point. That was kind of the big hindrance, but it, it was difficult, but I think it was the amount that I kind of uh, ascertained that it would be, but certain aspects like pre-production and organization were a lot tougher than I expected. So during all this, you're also bouncing a job with Gear Patrol. What does your day-to-day -day look like? Um, yeah, so... Uh, guys don't know check out gear patrol a little plug um uh yeah so basically at gear patrol uh i actually don't do any photography at gear patrol um, i mainly do like direction and cinematography um and then do like ideation and, and production uh we have an in-house agency where we do a lot of work for other brands um then we have our own organic content um so day to day i'm just like working on videos uh both for the brand uh, as well as other brands other companies different like commercial work for them or branded content. Um, but yeah, it was like definitely like a midnight oil thing. Um, definitely like would get off of work, be like 10 or 11, take a train to like Red Hook, like sprint to Trimble's house at like midnight and like photograph him and then like run back um, and do that at like different times. But yeah, mainly for Gear Patrol, it's just like mostly uh, video and production and such. So we talked about this a little bit before, and I know this is an old website of yours, but on the website you say, I don't consider myself a photographer. Do you now, after creating this book? Yeah, I think so. I think I like started to, what a ridiculous thing. Like, like, <laughs> like, like how we do I, some digging on here, and that's I know. what we found. Like how, like how hipster was I trying to be? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, sorry if you like identify as a hipster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like 
uh, like kind of like just like a. I'm trying to sound genuine here. Like I just like. Uh, I think I'm an extroverted person, but like I'm definitely like pretty pretty shy. Does that even make sense? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just like I had never done. I had taken a lot of photography, but I was never. Like it was never for a client or anything like that. It just was like I really enjoyed it, um, and so I like put this work out there, and then I made that site because I and I was like, well, I'm not a photographer, <laughs> and then when like work would come or what have you, I I don't know, I just like never really changed the site. Uh, but yeah, I I think I do now. Um, but yeah, what do you hope? Uh so there's going to be copies of the book available after this, uh, just outside over there. What do you hope people take away, aside from it just being something that, like, if they put it on their coffee table and they just can flip through it or have, you know, people at home flipping through it, what's the story from, you know, page one all the way to the end that you hope that they can come away with? Yeah, so I think there's two, two kind of parts of that. So the first one, to be, like, very literal, is... Uh, you know, th this project in itself was my attempt to explore why certain people run this race uh, and who they are in a way that you wouldn't get, like, by just knowing them. Um, and I hope that when people go through the book, first off, if you kind of analyze it, there's a lot of intention into the way that it's designed. So the first part of the book, you open the book up, you have, uh, obviously, if you know Joe, his handwriting is wonderful, right? We are so used to seeing his, like, handwriting all over the place. So I, I took his, we took his handwriting, um, and it's like an introduction to what the Vinite half is. Just so like if you if you weren't like privy to it, you would have it. But even if you have ran it or not, like there's some really like I think like serviceable information in there. Um, and I think as you go on, it's this like timeline of the race itself. I think it shows like just how much goes into it, who these people are, um, and it takes you through the race, and then like. To kind of close it up, it's like Joe back on Orchard Street, um, like hanging out, um, smoking a cigarette. And uh, I just want people to take away from it that kind of when I explored this process, like what the minute I have meant to people and what it is. And I think that you can decipher from each person what it is, hopefully through the images. I think I definitely learned a lot. But at the end of the day, and I know this is in the book, and this is going to sound cliche, like the minute I have is whatever the fuck you want it to be. Like... If you, if you go there because you're trying to win, that's what you should be doing. If you're going there because you think running is cool and you just started and your friend told you about it, that's amazing. I think that Joe's created this phenomenal race that transcends any type of person, any skill set, whatever. And at the end of the day, I think the coolest part of OSR is just like, no, like everyone enjoys it. Everyone supports it. And I think the main thing I can say is that's a byproduct of who Joe really is and, and who, who Trimble is and it's just kind of like dissolved into the project and I think it's incredible. Um, the second part of this pro project that's kind of unrelated is I just want people to take away from it that there's a lot of artists and photographers and cinematographers or what have you and they're, they're, they really care about their work and I think that now with like Instagram and all these different like f mediums and such that sometimes like people's work use tends to to scroll past it, right? Um, and people might not like see it as much because we've moved into this like kind of digital age. I think that when people see this book, I, I hope that it it makes individuals kind of consider like print work and and digital work or what have you, but just consider like people who are in the arts uh, from like a 
teenager like who puts out like a small zine all the way to like uh, you know a major major artist in any capacity like the arts really are incredible and, and, and I hope that like my work you know influences you to support others awesome so Brendan you've got a couple copies that are going to be available here but um, if you if they sell out here I think Brendan will also connect you guys as to like how you guys can get another copy of it um, but yeah, no, uh, if you guys, I guess we'll take five minutes for questions for Brendan, if you guys have any right now, um, before we move on to our next two guests. So if anyone has any questions for Brendan, it's an open floor right now. Yeah. Yeah, so in the book, there was like, and I've read it, it's awesome, so there was like a balance of like, the runners themselves, right, and then like their lifestyle, so what, what was your motivation to kind of capture that and kind of tell that story? Um... Yeah, I think that, uh, like, the catalyst for that, I think it, like, some of it, I, I might not be able to answer correctly, but was, was so, like, Ash Gilberton had always been, like, someone I really looked up to in photography, um, and then, like, when I met him uh, after, like, shooting the race, I was so curious as to, like, who he really was, um, and then I realized, and I went back, and I was, like, processing and, and editing the work that I, like, didn't know anything about Kaylin Phillips. I didn't know anything about Lee Gerson. And when I started asking people, I, I just had these like phenomenal responses, um, you know, and, and I kind of wanted to just know more about, about those people. Cool, do we have any uh, other questions here? We got one more for you actually, Brendan. Oh, we've, right yeah, there. Sure. Yeah. Um, I know the editing process for these things is pretty rigorous, you know, you shoot thousands of photos, you wind up using 50 to 100 maximum. Is there any one photo that got left on that cutting room floor that you're yeah, actually, there's there's more than I like than you would think. Um, obviously, uh, so uh, basically, m m like my my designer Andrew Haynes was we were very intentional about like the storyline and also keeping it condensed. And uh, there are there's one image from the race. I mean, there's a, there's a few, but I think one is. Uh, pre-race there's an image where like uh, there is like the uh the, like the like a freight like truck and there's like the light shining through and it was the women lining up and all of New York City skyline is in the background I love that photo and and Andrew kind of fought me on it yeah it was cool it's like a collaborative effort but uh he just didn't think that it fit and, and I agree with him now uh there are a ton of photos of Jordan that I just fucking love um <laughs> but i like the, like after he won he had this like very surreal moment like he was smiling and i think like how tired he was hit him that i, I really enjoy uh and then uh, there's there's a few photos of caitlin that uh i think are really beautiful um that just didn't kind of fit the aesthetic so yeah and um you know i'm gonna put all that work out um you know just through other mediums but yeah, and shout out Instagram. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, there's definitely are a few for sure. All right, we'll take one more from the audience if you've got any. If not, then I'm going to ask you. Uh, so Jordan is going to be coming up on stage in just a minute or so. But what's your favorite uh, part of, I guess, shooting him outside of the race and like maybe something you learned about him? Because there's not that much on the internet, and that's what we learned. Uh... Jordan, can I talk about that? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, like, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, like, 
it was kind of interesting, uh, like mildly personal, I guess, but uh, like I'd kind of been in this like relatively tumultuous, like lingering relationship. And uh, <laughs> and like I kind of talked to Jordan about like his like catalyst for running and like what got him into it and kind of was like my catalyst for like getting in, into photography more. And it was like our, kind of we had a joint conversation about like kind of a breakup starting him to get into running. Um, which I just, it, it's really interesting because you, you learn these like intimate things about people in, in these moments. Like I, I have a story for all these people of why the photos look a certain way. Um, but yeah, for Jordan, it was kind of, I was like, oh, you're also sad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll get that story in just a couple minutes then. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that was Brendan Clark. He's going to have a couple copies of the book available, but let's give it up for him. Thanks Thank so much for sharing. And he's going to be out there. If anyone thinks of questions or wants to ask yeah. him about the book, he's going to be free to ask. All right, so our next two guests... Uh, were stars of the 2019 Midnight Half. So we've got the men's winner over here, Jordan O'Donoghue, and the women's third place finisher, Sasha Whittle. Uh, so let's give it up for them. Guys, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> us. It's not just about you. No. Sorry, I, I was third place. I know it's not as good. <laughs> All right, so Jordan, I guess he just uh, started us off here. Uh, yeah. A breakup story, which is not uncommon within like New York City running, is like a catalyst to get going. Um, Chris? No, not, not with me. But with one of our previous guests, uh, Hector Espinal, I think that's what one of the big moments for him was uh, a breakup that he was, he wanted to all of a sudden like lose weight after this harsh moment in his life. So for you, how did this factor into your start with running? So before I start, I was actually whispering to Sasha at the time. I distracted him. I'm so sorry. He said yes. He didn't know what he was saying yes and to. I heard my name and I just went, yeah, sure, go for it. <laughs> um, no, so I, about early last year, I, just, I sort of dabbled in marathons before. Hadn't really ever fully jumped in uh, and had a relationship that ended uh, early January 2018. And I thought, what am I going to do? I need something to sort of fill this gap in my life and decided to choose running yeah and just threw myself into it um before I was doing like probably one two runs a week and I thought no let's just try and see what I can do with this fill this fill this gap in my life that's kind of su suddenly come available and that was nearly two years ago now yeah and it's paid off looking at your PRs it's crazy yeah, and two years is a very short time compared to, I don't know, even people in New York, they've been running their whole life, they're running in college, but you started with soccer or football, right? Yes. Football from now on, is that all right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Football. Yeah, uh, yeah um, I was always the guy who wasn't actually that technically gifted at football. I would just run around a lot, and it would make up for, like, my lack of technical ability. Um, so pretty much had dreams of playing football ever since I grew up. Um, I think when I got to about 19, I thought, probably not going to make it professional now. I had to give up on that dream. Um, and then just found running about four or five years later. So currently following that one, kind of. <laughs> and based off your accent from Staten Island, very clearly. Um, <laughs> no, but actually, so with our guests, we usually start off with like 
Where are you originally from and how did you end up in New York? Uh, so I'm from just outside London, a place called Essex, um, probably about 45 minutes to the east. Uh, moved to New York about three and a half years ago. Didn't want to come to New York, had no plans. I just got a call one morning from a guy, this big American, like stereotypical banker kind of guy, being like, what are you doing next week? Nothing. Do you want to come to New York? And I said no, originally. Had no plans. Um, what it's meant to come for six months, and then that was three, three and a half years ago now. And What was the first impression? Of New York? Yeah. Uh, I fell in love straight away. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're still here, so that <laughs> yeah. means something. Um, I, I, up until landing, I had no plans to stay. I was going to be here for six months, go home, and then never really looked back once I landed. So, yeah, that's it. And you're in banking, this is your, your day job. That's Before my day the job. running at night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm um, in banking, it's kind of uh, more internal strategy within banking, but yeah, I just say banking, it's easier. Stop the questions then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, one of the very few things that's on the internet about Jordan is that he is, it's his LinkedIn page, and all it says is <laughs> vice president at uh, JP Morgan. So, what does that day to day work schedule look like for you? It's actually not as hard as it is. Everyone seems to think, like, as soon as you say banking at JP Morgan, they're like, God, that's really, like, intense. I come in around 8.30, leave around 6. It's relatively stress-free. Hopefully my boss doesn't hear this. I'm just not <laughs> going to send this to him. Um, I enjoy it, though. I like the people I work with. Um, I like the company. Um, I'm saying this because this is a public platform. And if you're listening, <laughs> I love it there. <laughs> and Sasha... The opposite. From New York? I am from New York. Born and raised? Born and raised. So what was that like, I guess, for you? Where, where, where in New York were you born and raised? Um, born and raised on 91st in Madison. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I left for college, so I went to Vermont for college, but I have been back since, which was two and a half years ago. I'm a baby. Um, and, yeah. That's <laughs> what drew you back? And what made you want to come back? Um, I think a lot of people that are from New York come back to New York Preach. pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which you understand. Yeah. And for you, I guess, sports and running, when did that come into the picture, like, in your life? Um, I've been running competitively for probably 10 years now. Um, I started running track like in fifth grade, but at that point I was also like doing basketball and soccer, which clearly did not pan out. Um, and then, like, after eighth grade, entering high school, um, the cross-country coach asked me, like, at the end of track, said, are you going to do soccer next year? And I said, yes. And then he convinced me to do cross-country, and then the rest was history. So then I ran all through high school and college. Was it always something that you kind of enjoyed, or have you found it's gotten, you like it more now than you did back then? Uh, no, I, I always found a lot. I had a lot of trouble in school growing up, and, like, I really didn't, I didn't do well in school. I had a lot of trouble in my classes, and running was, like, the, out, like, successful outlet for me. And so running was, like, the thing that I found a lot of solace in. Your first, I guess, ever, what's the first racing memory that you have, like, from your life? I mean, you started out as a fifth grader, and those yeah. races, like, if you go back and find photos, you're just like... Wow, I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> know what I was doing. Honestly, I do remember running 1500s in sixth grade at Icon Stadium, 
where I was running like 6.30 in the 15. Um, and then I real the first time I remember like going after a goal and running was in ninth grade, I really wanted to break five in the 1500 and I didn't. And I was like devastated that I didn't. Then <laughs> now I guess like where, where has running, like when has it gotten to this point where you're now in a setting where you're super competitive, like on a, in the city level in terms of just like, the New York City running scene has like its whole un underground running scene as well. And you're up there and you're, I guess like, how did it get to this point? Um, I had like a rough first two years of college and senior year of college ended up being like my fastest year, which I think didn't happen for a lot of my teammates, which left me like feeling like there was more left in the tank. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people that I ran with felt like, oh God, I need a break now. But I left feeling like, like I ran, at, I was, I ran division three, but I um, ran at NCAAs for the 15 and division three and like did not have the best race of my life and felt immediately like I need to run another 1500. And actually immediately tried to run at like club nationals in New York, like right after I graduated. And then I decided that was a bad idea. Um, but so I just got to New York and realized there was like a really strong running scene and that it was like easy enough to just like pick up right where I'd left off. And you balance that with your job. You are a producer, kind of, well, I guess, how similar is that to what Brendan does? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a producer, but I work at a um, arts nonprofit um, in Brooklyn. It's called Brick Arts Media. Um, most people know it because we put on like the Celebrate Brooklyn concerts in Prospect Park. Um, but we are also a public access television station. So I am technically like a public access producer, um, but I do a lot of short documentary stuff. So I'm not, I'm not doing any branded content, um, but I produce and edit short docs. What are your favorite types of stories to tell? Weird ones? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, weird? Um, I did a story about these like, Rat enthusiasts. Um, I don't know if any oh, of you have God. ever seen Mother Pigeon. She's like this performance artist who's like around Washington Square Park a lot, and she like has these felt pigeons, and she also is like covered in pigeons all the time. But I, I like ended up talking with her, and she told me about a friend that feeds sewer rats, and like oh, it really progressed this from is there. Worst and yeah, yeah. I hate rats. It, the I the love rats, so <laughs> I do. I do love rats, so. I made a really, really weird piece that like ended up getting picked up more than like any of my other stuff. Like Gothamist like wrote something, like a scathing thing about these women, but I was like, it was meant to be funny. They were like, they're causing, these are the women that are the problem and are causing our rat epidemic because we actually like made these nut butter balls that we fed to sewer rats. Why? <laughs> I don't know, but I was along for the ride and it was great. So, okay, so through your job, you see probably some of the weirdest people in New York City. Yeah, I do. How does that compare to just the oddities that you come across within, like, the New York City running scene? Because it is... They're Runners are pretty weird. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think people are, like, feeding rats during the midnight half. I hope not. But... Yeah, I mean, I would say that my, my work brings me to, to stranger places. But, I, you know, a lot of the people that I work with are fascinated to hear about the underground running scene. And it's definitely, like, a very weird 
another weird part of my life that is, you know, weird. equally interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you ran with Nyack for a little while and then recently switched to Distance Project. Do you feel like the New York City running community allowed you to kind of find your place in there? And then how did OSR kind of play into you belonging or finding your spot in this running community? Yeah, um, I joined NIAC like straight out of college. Um, I didn't, I, at that point I didn't know like anything about th the scene. <laughs> um, and uh, it exposed me to like a new competitiveness, like a level of running that I just really didn't know was possible post-college. And like I ran with all these amazing women that like, I, I think that honestly every single person, like every woman on NIAC has like qualified for Olympic tri It's really, it's a, a stellar team with some really, really fast runners. So immediately I just felt like I need to up the game. Like I was training more and more because I was surrounded by these women. So um, yeah, and then I felt like once I got to know everything better and then I moved to Brooklyn and like I live in Park Slope and I started running with a lot of the women around there and basically just kind of fell in with a lot of the distance project women. So it kind of felt like a natural fit and swap just in terms of like where I was. <laughs> To bring it together, I guess, on the point of like the 2019 midnight half, like for both of you, what is your memory of it from like start to finish and just like how that whole race played out? And I guess we'll start with, with Jordan. Um, I mean, it's quite cliche to say it's a bit of a blur, but it kind of was. Yeah, like, I think um, in, afterwards, like on Instagram, you said like you didn't expect to, to win that race. I mean, I knew Kyle Price was going to go out pretty fast and I thought, right, who I can find that's going to be about the same pace and ended up running with Cam. And about mile three, I said to Cam, I was like, do you know where you're going? And he was like, nah. And Brendan, Brendan was saying about, uh, these OSR races are all about trust, but they're all about the lack of trust. No one really knows where they're going on these races. Like, they, they kind of know, but if someone goes, I remember about mile eight, you went left and I went straight, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I've got the right way here. And then about a mile later, he was about 200 meters ahead of me, and I thought, yeah, okay, I've gone the wrong way. Um, <laughs> but I knew if I could get in some kind of pack and work with it, I felt Kyle might have gone a bit off a bit too fast. Um, turns out he did. I've got no kick. When I was playing football, like, my friends, who's going to be Jordan one pace, like, literally <laughs> had no sprinting ability. And so I knew in the last mile I, I had to be either in the lead or close to it. And then, yeah, managed to sort of catch everyone around mile 12 and nearly took a wrong turn coming into the Whole Foods. Went right, and then went left. Um, and yeah, managed to come through. Nearly caught Sasha, actually, if you look in the photo. I do remember that, yeah. actually. <laughs> but actually, so one last thing as well. There was, um, there was a guy, actually, who was just coming through at the same time as me. And I remember running next to him, and he was running probably about a seven-minute pace. And then he sees me coming up to his side and decided to start running with me. <laughs> and he actually broke the tape ahead of me. Like, he, he, if you look at the photos, there's this guy just in a jacket, just breaks the tape ahead of me and took, took my moment from me. The only time it will ever happen. That's the real champion, actually. Exactly. You should be sitting here instead of me. <laughs> Sasha, what's your uh, memory of the race? Um, I remember mapping it and thinking this is going to be the longest run of my life, actually, because the longest run at that point was like, 13 and a half miles. So I was desperately trying to figure out how to make it shorter. So 
the first thing that I decided, well, I really, I knew I wanted a medal. I was like, that's a pretty medal. I will do anything for that medal. And I decided I'm gonna cut through Greenwood Cemetery. And I made like a very, very serious effort. And I scouted it like three times, once because I was right there for work. And then I had this moment of real, like I was, I was in. I knew where I was gonna jump the fences. Like I was ready, I had the route. And then I had this realization that they might have guard dogs. So I called Greenwood Cemetery. And I was like, hi, I'm a journalist. I work for a public access station. We're doing a story about um, canine police dogs. And I would love to know if you have them. And. They were like, we need to get back. I don't, the person on the phone didn't know the answer and they needed to get back to me. And this was the day before the race and I was like, fuck, <laughs> what am I gonna do? And I never got the answer and I was like, I don't know if it's worth risking a leg for this, but it could be, it could be. But I got the call back the day later from the PR thing. So I actually, and I never called them back because I was too ashamed and I used my real name. And um, so I don't know the answer, but I didn't cut through Greenwood. I stayed with Leanne and Kayla and I decided like this is not, it's not worth the risk. That's secret for next year's race. Uh, yeah, I know. Like I want to know. <laughs> I think they, I think they have guard dogs. I think they do. I saw a video. I did like some really deep deep internet search and I saw some videos from like also from like a public access channel from like 2008 where there were dogs and I was thinking maybe they don't have dogs anymore but I don't know I'm, I don't know the answer well that kind of makes sense because we talked a little bit about this before that there's something about OSR races that like terrifies you or makes I'm more nervous to race OSR than I am about any other race, and you mentioned the same thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about these races that make them intimidating and nerve-wracking? Either one. Because you don't really know where you're going. You think you do, and then as soon as the person to the left of you goes to the opposite way, then you're not sure. I remember during the 10K, it was started on um, in the Lower East Side, and I turned right straight away, and I thought, okay, no one else has turned right. Why have I done this? And then I was in the front, going up the Manhattan Bridge and then obviously got caught straight away. But I think it's just the, the, un, the fact of the unknown. Like any other NYRR race, you're on a course. You, don't, you know where you're going. Unless you run in Central Park, then you could actually keep going straight on at one point. <laughs> but you, you, know, you don't know where you're going. And I think that's, that's a factor. I mean, for me, I think that Joe does such an amazing job of... Um, I think this is rare, honestly, for a lot of women's races, that he does such a good job of hyping up the competitiveness and, like, the glory of winning. And so for me, I go into OSR races wanting to win because I, like, I like winning, and I, and I think that's great. I like winning, and I think that he makes that okay, and he makes it, like, a space where it's okay to want to be gritty and competitive and to want to win, which isn't necessarily the case in a lot of, like, road races. You're racing the clock. And so I get really nervous because I, I go in like wanting to, to get the win. And that is, to me, much more nerve-wracking than, than trying to get a PR because you're, you're really just racing the people around you. So there's a lot of photos being taken, so like you need to be looking good at all times. <laughs> Honestly, I was blinded before the midnight half. It was wild. <laughs> so that, All right, now we'll dive into some of you guys' personal running journeys. And so for... 
Jordan, I guess we'll start with the fact that we were able to dig up that your first marathon was the 2015 Paris Marathon. Leanne, you ran that one, right? I did. How'd that one go for you? Well, I ran faster than you <laughs> in Paris, which I think that should just mean that I should be a 230 marathoner right now, like you are, and I don't know where I went wrong. <laughs> so 324.45 for your first marathon. Yes. W what was running at that point in your life? I basically left university in 2014, and I kind of wanted something to look forward to, something to aim towards, and I figured I'd just start going to like little weekends away with my parents and just running a marathon every spring. So I'd start running on January 2nd, stop running towards the end of March, not run for nine months, and then I'd do the same again the next year. So I did Paris, Rome, London, until 2018, and then thought, okay, let's try and take this a bit more seriously. Um, was running up, I think I had, well, the last one before I took it seriously was a 304, and then went on from there really, yeah. And then from there, like the leaps and bounds are ridiculous here. It's like 231 at the 2018 New York City Marathon, then 229.50 at the 2019 London Marathon. What do you credit to that huge jump in, of like improvement? Literally just running more often. Like, I mean, it sounds like obviously like running six days a week, but I was at the time I wasn't doing, I was just running. I wasn't really doing like the rolling out and the leg exercise and the strengthening exercises and all the things around that and kind of hit my limit there and been injured ever since that 229. Actually, ever since I've been that half, I've been injured. And so I had to learn how to roll out and use leg bands and do all the different strength exercises. So now I know what it's like to be a runner. Up until about May 31st this year, <laughs> didn't really know what it was like, now I know what it's like, so yeah. What do you want to do next? I'm signed up for London. Um, don't know how I'm gonna do in that one, really. Uh, I mean, I'd like to get down to as low as I can. I mean, I can't qualify for the Olympic trials because I'm literally not American. So <laughs> in England, it's, uh, it's the fastest three people go, so. I don't have that carrot dangling in front of me. Mo Farah, that guy, yeah, it's like know. in your way. I mean, there's a few people faster <laughs> than me out there. Um, no, just keep trying to get as fast as I can. I mean, I, I run because it's like a nice escape and it kind of keeps you level-headed and it resets your body and mind every day. But I also run quite selfishly. I want to try and see how fast I can go. I want to try and see what I can do, you know? And I don't think 229 is my limit. I want to keep going. So that's why I run. Can you take us through this week that you had in 2018? So it's you ran Boston, and it's that year that it was crazy, you know, storms, rain coming down, people getting hypothermia left and right, and then just a couple days later you run London and you managed to PR. Like that's absurd, right? Yes, yeah, I, <laughs> I ran. I ran the RSR 30 two weeks before, and I went through my marathon. The, my watch said I'd just run a 2.52, and at the time my marathon PR was a 3.04, and I thought, all right, okay, okay, we'll see, we'll see how this goes. Um, and then ran Boston, it was that 2018 year, where it was unbelievably cold, was going for a 2.50, ended up running a 2.44, um, negative split by about five minutes, and like, how? I just felt guilty whenever I spoke to people, they were like, oh, I had the toughest race, and I was like, yeah, same. <laughs> I, like, it's, it's, to this day, it was my favorite race ever. Like, because I just went off so slow. I went off way too slower than I should have done, really, and ended up had a, having a huge negative split. And then ran 
that was on the Monday, and then ran London on the Sunday, so it was six days, same week. Can, can I ask why? <laughs> just fancied it. No, um, <laughs> I don't know. I thought they were two weeks apart, realised they were the same week. Um, and then London was actually the warmest London marathon ever, the 25 degrees Celsius or 70 degrees Fahrenheit for everyone here. Um, and I remember getting the massage on the Friday by the guy at the sort of um, expo. And he was like... God, your legs are pretty tight, aren't they? And I was like, yeah, I ran Boston four days ago. And he was like, what are you doing here then? Because <laughs> I, like, I don't know. And I remember I, I obviously, having run with RSR quite a lot during the summer, I didn't run with the top. I put my uh, pin on the side of my shorts. And uh, mile 16, my friends always catch me at mile 16, mile 22. And they were sitting there at London and thought, there's a, there's a guy topless coming through. Who's that? I went, oh, it's Jordan. Oh, yeah, he's coming through. He's topless. He's doing that. Apparently, it's not a thing in London. I was the only one. It's a thing here, not there. It's, that's just an absolutely insane week. Oh, my God. Yeah, maybe before London, you should sign up for, like, three marathons leading into your goal race just to see how it goes. No, I'm injured now. I'm, I'm firmly in the running community of just as soon as you get, as soon as you get injured, you're always injured, you know? So that was... Those were the days when I wasn't, so yeah. I'll try not to do that again. All right, we'll move to Sasha now. First marathon just happened, right? One week ago, yeah. yeah. What made you want to <laughs> sign up for it in the first place? Do you want me to be honest? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I really wanted to OTQ before 2020, and I felt like a lot of, I just felt the bug. I got the bug. I told my, I told many people six months ago, if you had spoken to me, I said, I'm not going to run a marathon for a couple years. And then on a phone call with my coach, Brendan Martin, I like jokingly said, I'll run CIM. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> there I was. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the yeah. OTQ bug. It's the great. OTQ bug, which I didn't get. So... But it's okay because now I tried and now I felt like, okay, well, I, at least I like put myself out there. Did you enjoy marathon training? Because it's, I think you had written on Instagram or the post afterwards that the marathon is such a culmination of the miles that you put in and the people that you run with. And I agree that it really is about the buildup and the training and sometimes that can be even more rewarding than the actual race. And I'm just wondering how you felt about that. Yeah, I felt like the it was a really special like three months of running for me. Um, I I mean I made like a lot of new friendships general like, you know throughout all like running generally. And then I I mean I I don't run that many miles a week. Like I'm still like pretty low mileage. So it's not like I was running insane stuff or anything. But it was definitely like a huge huge learning curve. And I was like the fittest I've ever been. And it was like awesome to get like a half PR during it, and I I definitely en enjoyed the training. I enjoyed the race, but it was so freaking long. <laughs> um, but I, I am, like, ready to do another one, of, you know, maybe next year, and it's fun. I mean, I still am, like, chasing after shorter PRs, which I, I was still, like, chasing after mile PRs this last summer and I'm gonna try to do that again so I'm just gonna be all over the place. 
Can you take us through your day at CIM? I guess from the moment you wake up at your hotel and then afterwards, one of the first things I think I remember seeing on Instagram stories was you come down out of this elevator and you've got like friends of yours who are just greeting you there and all of a sudden it's just sobbing and crying <laughs> and the video screen goes black. And I was like, why am I crying? <laughs> Um, okay, so I woke up at, like, 4 a.m. Um, my girlfriend was asleep in bed, and I, like, ate oatmeal in the bathroom and, like, sipped on Martin, so I, like, didn't want to wake her up. And at that point, I'm getting texts from, like, three of my friends from New York telling me, like, I'm so excited for you. What time are you racing? And at that point, I'm like, you know, 7 a.m., but 10 a.m. your time. Um, and I go downstairs, and, like, three of my best friends from New York had surprised me. Um, so, you know, waterworks began because I did not, it just didn't even cross my mind that anyone would um, fly to California. Um, so that, you know, so I sobbed at, you know, 4.45 in the morning <laughs> and then got on the bus with my teammates, um, Jordan and Colleen. Actually, Colleen was not on my bus, but um, pretended to be an elite runner when the elite tent kind of anxiously walked around and um, almost cried on the start line again, just out of like pure emotion. Um, that this was like a big thing coming up or what was that? Yeah, it, like I have thought about, you know, when I would run my first marathon probably for a long time. Like I knew it would happen eventually. And um, there's just a lot of emotions on the start line of CIM, especially just because there's a, it is the most, it's so competitive, like just not in terms of the fastest people, but it's like insane the number of women who were like, I started in a pack of like 140 women, um, like all trying to run the same time. And it was so emotional and beautiful and like intense. Um, so yeah, and then at mile 17, like my whole body started cramping and I, <laughs> and I reevaluated my goals, but um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that was my day. <laughs> was there a moment in the marathon that you wanted to stop? And if so, how did you get through that moment? Oh, my God. The, at mile 17, when my toes started cramp, like my, I had like a full Charlie horse. There was a woman on the side of the road playing the trumpet, <laughs> playing on my own from Les Mis. <laughs> I don't know who let her do that. <laughs> And I really, at that point, I was, like, starting to spiral panic. I was, I had lost the pack. I was completely alone. Like, I was in, the, the, two, the 250 pack at CIM is, like, everyone who went out at 245 and severely died. And it's, it's brutal. It's, like, people are vomiting on the side of the roads. Like, people are walking, crying. It's, like, it's really bad. So it's a grim situation back there. Versus, like, I feel like in other marathons, like, there are other people who are trying to run 250 at CIM. It doesn't happen. So I definitely at 17 had a, a moment of holy shit. But it was my first marathon, so I, I didn't want to stop. I knew, like, whatever I ran was going to be a PR, and, and I was going to be happy with whatever I ran at the end of the day. And, like, I'm, I am really happy with a 251. Like, I think that's great. So um, You crossed the finish line. You said you mean you're super happy, but, I mean, like, what – what is the feeling going forward, I guess, about the marathon for you? I mean, I, growing up in New York, the New York City Marathon is something I think I read somewhere, I think, through some stalking that you said, like, it's something that you saw growing up, and that's why the marathon was so special to you. 
Yeah, I think I do. I want to say this like on the record. I think I might run New York next year. Um, and you have to now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like it's firmly here now. Um, no, I, I'm like excited to keep seeing what the marathon has for me. I don't think I'm just a marathoner, but I I know that like. Sadly, I have long distance potential. And so as much as I want to be a miler, I am not that. Awesome. Uh, all right, let's, we'll open up the floor now for questions if you have anything for Jordan or Sasha. So anything from, the, from you listeners over here? I guess to start us off. Jordan, there's, this came up. It was submitted on Instagram. Someone was wondering, you've got this post-race finish line pose that you do after, like in photographs, where it's, I think you kind of just lay out and like, what what is it exactly? I mean, I mean you're more than one. Do you, yeah, do you want to do it? Yeah, can you do it? But now? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, there's two actually. All right. One of them is literally, you, get, you, you go up to the newest photographer and they're like, expect you to just get like a normal photo of your middle and then you actually start doing a photo shoot. So you just start just going like, like that, <laughs> going like that. That. He's hip thrusting right now. Sometimes just FYI, I just get on the floor and see what happens. The floor ones are the ones that were shared with me. Oh yeah, the floor ones. Yeah, they're, they're, they're special occasions. All right, all right, um, all right. We got anything from from the audience before we wrap it up? You see anything? Yeah. What is a common injury from when you're running marathons? It band. Yeah. Did that one at the midnight half. Been injured ever since. So, just make sure you strengthen your glutes and your abductors. Josh, you got anything? Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. What was your favorite part? What of both of y'all, actually? What was y'all's favorite part of the midnight half with the whole experience of the craziness that it was? Because it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite bit was when I turned to you, and I, as I said earlier, like, do you know where you're going? You're like, nah, not really. Like, just being like, OK, this is it, really. Um, yeah, that. I think the last checkpoint, like coming when you realize you're about to be dead. I remember I saw I you know, I from afar, <laughs> and I could yeah. all of a sudden. This was like I had been alone for a while at that point. It was pouring rain, and I just finally like felt life. So that was that was fun. I didn't think running was going to be this big of a part of my life, honestly. Um, I had no idea like what sort of insane amount of energy there was around the running world. In like, I kind of saw it when I was younger, and like you know, I would have practices in Central Park, and I would I would see Central Park Track Club, and I kind of like knew a little bit about the energy around that, but I really didn't know um, that there was going to be like such a place for it that um, could like take up my adult life too. So I was really pleasantly surprised by like, you know, all the friends and like all the competitions that I could still like have in my life. So last thing, I guess, before we wrap up, I mean, are there any places like in New York that you kind of like, because you guys have run multiple like OSR races that you look at, whether it's just like on an easy run or just something where you kind of have like these flashbacks, this little PTSD or it's like, oh, I remember where I was at this point during this race or like anything that has really changed as a result of OSR races for you. 
That okay, that spot. I don't even know what street it's on. I should know. The spot where both the Red Hook and this random bread run race, the Red Root race that I ran, finished. Like right on, on Allen. No, what was it on? Like Mont Anyone? Mont yeah. It's kind of like near the river, though, where I have had two all-out sprint finishes against people. Like, one of them being my very close friend, Carly Gill. I feel like a surge of adrenaline when I'm there because of how hard I had to kick on the street and, like, almost got hit by a car one time. <laughs> and so that, that street has changed for me. I think it's whenever I'm running from Brooklyn into Manhattan and you've got either Brooklyn or Manhattan Bridge to take. And I remember in the, uh, one of the OSR ones, the Red Hook route, and it was me, Carl, and another person. I can't remember his name. I apologize if you're listening. Um, they're both from New Jersey. And I thought, I mean, they're not going to know where they're going. I'm going to go across Manhattan. They're going to go across Brooklyn. I know the shortcut. And so went across Manhattan, and Joe was following me because he thought, oh, Jordan knows where he's going. He's going to probably win this. And so he yeah, I've got, I've got this, definitely. And then as I'm coming down Manhattan, I sort of see them literally coming down the road. And I thought, right, so I don't know which bridge is the fastest to go across. <laughs> and so now we're over in Brooklyn. I'm thinking, always go across the Brooklyn Bridge rather than Manhattan Bridge to get back. Unless it's four or five o'clock. I the took the Manhattan Bridge that night. I still won. I didn't run run fast enough time. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, Jordan and and Sasha, thanks so much for for sitting down with us and sharing. And um, they'll be around, I'm sure, afterwards as well if you guys want to go up to them and talk to them. But uh, no, yeah, thanks thanks to everyone for for coming out to this. For us, it feels like everything's coming full circle just a little bit after a year after we started this show. Joe was our very first guest, and now the fact that we can have a nice live show and have a lot of you people here, um, it's awesome. So uh, thanks to everyone for coming out, and uh, enjoy the rest of the night. I think we've still got uh, drinks and and a couple bites out there. So um, yeah, that's the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Many thanks to Brendan, Sasha, and Jordan for the great conversation. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. Big shout out to our sponsor, Fix NYC, for supporting the show. Again, you could check them out at 206 West 23rd Street and use promo code Runners of NYC for a special. You can also support the Runners of NYC podcast on Patreon. And if you're curious, what's Patreon? It's a crowdfunding platform that allows listeners like you to support our work with monthly contributions in exchange for premium content. We want to continue pushing out the podcast on a bi-weekly basis in 2020 and bring you quality audio from our guests. We're simply asking you to set aside a, f- a couple bucks that might go toward a coffee, uh, a dollar slice, or whatever to support our work. In return, we'll do our best to put together exclusive episodes, interviews. I've got a video camera now, so we're going to try and incorporate some video Um, And that'll all go for our Patreon supporters. They also get first dibs on our live show. And our next live show is in January. And we will announce that to our Patreon listeners first. The NYC running community is awesome. And we appreciate any assistance. And you can do that at patreon.com slash runners of NYC. Leanne and I also really appreciate it every time that you guys post on your Instagram stories that you're listening to the show. So if you continue to do that, we'll continue to repost it on our profile. And if you're being extra, extra generous in the holiday season, consider leaving a nice review on our Apple podcast page. You can do it while listening on your iPhone. 
new reviews allow for people to discover the show and it because of the iTunes algorithm it helps our ranking on in the sports category and on all these podcast rankings which is always very interesting to track if you're interested in sponsoring the show or have any suggestions for guests reach out to me chris at sidiousmag.com that does it for this episode I'm your host Chris Chavez and on behalf of my co-host Leanne Sherrick we will see you guys again soon